Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another special episode of Deep State Radio as we try to keep our heads around the ongoing and, uh, in some respects, uh, deepening uh, COVID pandemic. We've got our two uh, experts and uh, good friends, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author Lori Garrett and uh, former uh, senior Obama health advisor and practicing physician, Dr. Kavita Patel. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi. So I, let me give you my personalized perspective on all of this. Um, I, and I'm reluctant to admit this, but you know we sort of have to open up to each other in these things. In the past couple of weeks, I uh, I entered into one of the categories that one is able to get the vaccine in, um, and and I don't want to say which. Obviously, I'm a first responder or a kindergarten teacher, um, but um, but. You know, I, I entered it and immediately my daughters and my wife were like, so now you have to get your vaccine. And so I went to the New York State website again and again and again and at midnight and at two in the morning. And my doctor was very helpful. And she was like, well, go to this one and go to this one. And then they, I would, the thing would pop up and I would click and it would go zero appointments, zero appointments, zero appointments. And, and I said to the doctor, well, what do I do about this? And she said, well, most of my patients who are getting appointments, they have several laptops set up in front of them. And they refresh them constantly. And they're constantly checking for new appointments. And I thought, this is fucked up. You know, this is, this is New York City. This is, you know, we're supposed to have been knowing this was coming for a long time. It really looks like this vaccine program it's a big mess right now. And I, so let's start with that, Lori, and then Kavita. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'll one-up you on personal story because I just found out, uh, what, 48 hours ago that I was in a category that was newly allowed uh, to be vaccinated in the state of New York. And I immediately went on the appropriate website. And after uh, about an hour of messing with the website, which kept crashing, I was told uh, it, it, the whole site froze. I thought, well, that's the end of that. And then I picked up my cell phone and I had five absolutely identical text messages telling me that I, you know, congratulations, you have an appointment, but the appointment was for three hours in the past. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll jump in my time machine. <laughs> and uh, I tried to call and nobody answers the phone. You only get robo stuff. So I just decided, well, I'll just go down there. I mean, if they had an appointment for me for three hours ago, I'll show this and I'll talk my way in. 
I got down there and the street address was barricaded off by the by a security detail. And I was told that if I did not back off, I would be arrested. I went around the corner to another entry to the same high school and entered seeing others waiting for vaccines, bewildered and roaming about, not understanding what to do. And I stepped in and was shouted at by armed security people saying, you're trespassing, get out of this building. Went around to a third entry and encountered a, a security detail from the NYPD that informed me that this was now a staging ground. They wouldn't say for what, and that if I didn't remove myself immediately, I would be arrested. Uh, and I came back and proceeded to use every contact I have to the governor's office, the mayor's office, etc. I finally have, I hope, an appointment for two weeks from now to get vaccinated, but that's what it took. And we're hearing even worse stories from all over the country that people are encountering that the tech side of it is a complete disaster. Um, and, you know, here you're asking people, priorities are in their 80s and 90s to somehow navigate websites that totally web savvy people are finding are crashing on them. And you're asking an 85 year old to figure out how the web works and get on these messed up websites. Um, and then, as I saw with my own eyes, you're asking, you're, you're ordering people to go to a site that's surrounded by cops and they're not allowed into, and they've navigated their way there on walkers. So you're, you're abusing senior citizens, essentially. Um, now, all of this, as you said, was fully anticipated. Everybody knew this rollout was going to be a mess. And the warning signs were issued all the way back in August. I mean, I can show you paper after paper after paper that circulated on Capitol Hill and in the White House warning that we didn't have an infrastructure that was up to the job and that we needed to start building it up way before we had an officially accredited vaccine. We didn't. Uh, instead, the focus was on, well, what do we do about the vaccine deniers and how do we convince them? Mm -hmm. So, you know, millions of dollars have been spent trying to convince people to get vaccinated. Well, you have a huge number of people saying we want vaccine and they can't get it. That's the issue. Kavita? Yeah, I'll, I mean, there's nothing uh, to do other than to kind of expand on the complaining. I'll complain from the side of, um, I'm in a clinic and we are a designated vaccine provider for the District of Columbia. And we're in the process, believe it or not. So today we're recording just for the sake of posterity, January 19th, Wednesday, we just had uh, our first webinar with the state of Maryland on January 12th, yesterday to talk about whether or not clinics such as mine, which are positioned in both the district and Maryland, could start to be vaccine providers for the state of Maryland. So I'm not trying to call out just the state of Maryland because I could reproduce that conversation in other states. However, to Lori's point, number one, this wasn't some shock that we were going to have to have a vaccine distribution strategy. And candidly, we were probably kind of in a position to at least even if we weren't, in, you know, enough manufacturers were authorized to distribute and we didn't have hundreds of millions of doses potentially, we would have at least needed to activate at a minimum the kind of quote regular vaccine infrastructure, 
with which the CDC, so I'm going to go ahead and layer on top of this, Lori, and both Lori Garrett and, and David, both of you have had excellent tweet threads about how all of these decisions, while they seemed minimal at the time years ago, who they put in these agencies have led to truly thousands of deaths a day. But I'll go ahead and add that, you know, these are not like, quote, new processes. We have a robust flu vaccine network and infrastructure, majority of which are retail pharmacies, clinics, and pediatricians offices. All we had to do is say, these people with the help of these, you know, hospitals that have freezers to store the damn things could be our network. Instead, Lori's exactly right. We spent more airtime and press time on vaccine hesitancy and a way too much time on how complicated the freezers were. And, and yes, they're complicated, but at the end of the day, it was, it was one of these things. So I fully expect um, we're on the eve of what I believe President-elect Biden is gonna give a speech. And I think there's gonna be a significant co concentration on COVID-19. And I do think that we're gonna hopefully hear about some tangible steps to accelerate the vaccines. And Lori's been very close to this. I think in light of some of these um, mutations and concerns about variants under investigation. I think there's additional pressure on the Biden elect administration to hit the ground running next week. I think there's also tremendous concern among immunologists about a sort of massive experiment we're doing at the moment, um, the outcomes of which are not clear and could be very bad. Mm. And that massive experiment is that we now know we have at least five variants in circulation. These are mutated, highly mutated, in one case, 23 significant mutations in a single virus, um, strains that uh, seem to have various different capacities to spread or to um, cause harm to individuals who get infected. So a lot of tension is on the UK variant, which has clearly been responsible for more than doubling the number of uh, both cases and deaths due to COVID-19 in the UK since Christmas. I mean, it's been, if you look at a chart of, of the UK's epidemic, it's a straight up line, 90 degree angle, just boom. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a South African variant that um, appears to be uh, at least partially resistant to to available vaccines. Huge debate going on. Pfizer claims, oh, it works fine in our lab studies. Our vaccine still stops it. Moderna's made a similar claim, but the UK government says their own tests show this is a cause for concern. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of reason to be worried because the key set of mutations is what's called um, the receptor binding, binding domain, which is a fancy way of saying it's right on the target spot where the virus connects to the human cell and gains entry. So it's like it's the doorknob and the doorknob has mutated. And when that doorknob is mutated, antibodies don't see it anymore. Um, so there's worry about that. And then we have this brand new one that came out of the Amazon section of Brazil and via a traveler has turned up in Tokyo and is spreading like wildfire across Japan. Um, and it looks to be similar to the UK one in, in terms of its attributes, but genetically completely distinct. And I think it, you know one of the things we're learning is that as we have more and more people out there in the world, millions now, who have 
either received either are already immunosuppressed because they have cancer or they have HIV or they have a whole variety of different conditions that have resulted in them having weakened immune systems. Or they've taken, um, they've had COVID and they took monoclonal antibody treatment, the very same stuff that President Bush took and claimed was his miracle cure. Um, But for whatever reason, it's not completely effective. In either case, what they've done is create an atmosphere that's like a perfect Darwinian evolutionary Petri dish inside your body where you're exerting this insufficient um, uh, immunological pressure on the virus that essentially selects for escape mutations, for viruses that say, you know, whoa, here comes antibodies, here comes immune system, boom, we got to mutate around this and select for those amongst our population of viruses that can resist these um, immunological assaults. And so uh, one immunologist, very, very famous immunologist, circulated and emailed among his colleagues that uh, many of us saw and got you know, goosebumps reading where he said, you know, if you wanted to design a worst case scenario for how to use our technological toolkit to combat a virus, this would be it. You, You have complete chaos in your delivery of vaccines. Nobody even really keeps track of who's getting what vaccine. Maybe a lot of people are gonna end up getting Pfizer as first dose and Moderna as second dose because of all the screw ups. Then you throw out monoclonal antibody treatments willy-nilly without anybody keeping track of that in any way. And you have uh, immunocompromised individuals who for one reason or another can't mount a good strong immune response against the virus, but may have virus in them taking advantage of their weakened immune system environment. You throw it all together in a hodgepodge of delivery. And then on top of everything else, you have some governments officially announcing, you know what, we're only gonna give one dose, even though this is a vaccine that requires two, or we're not gonna worry about this timing. You know, maybe Moderna wants 21 days and Pfizer wants 28 days, but let's just go ahead and get the whole first dose out there first. This is what Biden's team said. And then we'll just see when we can manage to get the second dose out. All of this is a kind of massive, terrifying biological experimentation. (laughs) And um, I, uh, you know, it could, who knows, it's an experiment, it could all just be fine. But most the uh, indicators so far are putting up warning signs. And uh, as I say, among immunologists, there is tremendous concern about how all this is playing out right now. The only thing I'll say, the the only, Laurie, I I always, Anytime Lori Garrett says to be worried, I, I worry. The only thing I'll, I'll kind of reiterate that gives me a little bit less kind Please. of you know, <laughs> pause is, is just some of the early data. One, I think that the efficacy of the mRNA vaccines is just so impressive that yes, this, the idea of immune escape and some of the concepts that I don't think any Americans are incredibly familiar with are very, very important. But if we think about this as a race, and if we can have a competent administration, which I believe we'll have in Biden's people, to actually try to launch kind of, or to reboot this vaccination strategy, you could imagine a scenario, Lori, where if we limit travel, if we do what they're already talking about doing, which is to kind of require testing for all you know, arrivals into the US, 
I frankly think we need it for all travel, domestic included. But if we do that and we can get vaccine out, do you think that we can at least kind of just clip the wings of like a more transmissible virus to some degree? I mean, because now we're playing this game of immunity. It'll happen either because we get their infection. We think like what, 25% of the country is infected by real numbers, which is not testing. And so is that possible to see a, l- a little bit of a, an end in sight? Because if we can then compress, we're already seeing the r not kind of the rate, we're already seeing it drop a little bit in some regions, right? So could we not see that scenario, which would be a little yeah, bit of a rosier one? Before I answer you, let's ask David as the non-specialist. So far, are you with us? Are you and your audience <laughs> following our conversation? Yeah, I'm following the conversation and um also want the audience to know that we do these shows with you two guys for two reasons. One is this is an absolutely vital issue and they care about it deeply. And two, I don't have to do any work. I can just sit here and, and, and you guys bounce it back, which is good. So that's the reason I'm silent. Go, go ahead. Okay. Well then let me, let me just take, do the rollback machine to exactly a year ago today. What was going on in the world a year ago today? Well, all of us who were paying any attention were absolutely riveted by information out of Wuhan, China. Mm-hmm. And we were watching one part of China after another go into shutdown. And um, the, you know, a lot of the government leadership in not just the United States, but in countries all over the world was watching as if it were an abstract event, a movie unfolding over there. But those of us who have seen this movie before were saying, wait, we need to be doing surveillance on a massive level. The virus must already be here. Um, And of course, famously, Donald Trump declared that once he shut down flights from China, he saved America, right? Um, Well, of course, the lesson we learned from that is that in fact, that Wuhan initial form of the virus uh, was indeed widely spread already in isolated cases around the United States, especially in the West. And then it seeded a whole new variant that emerged in Italy that became the cause of that astonishing early spring epidemic in Italy that was so devastating. And that epidemic strain made it to uh, the East Coast, especially New York City, long before any measures were taken to limit travel from Italy. So what's, what should be the, a smart policymaker's take-home message from that story a year ago? It should be, if you found out that there's a variant somewhere in the world, it's probably already here. And so, yes, you may be able to take some travel-related measures to try and prevent it from being reintroduced multiple times, but what you really should be doing is ramping up your genomic surveillance inside your own country and looking at hotspots and super spreader events to make sure that we're not seeing it already in Los Angeles, that it's not already driving this resurgence now yet again in Arizona, et cetera. And, you know, the UK, if you look at the more than 300,000 strains of this virus that have now been fully genomically sequenced with their whole genomes posted open source, amazing, never done before any epidemic, right? You look at that and you say, where do most of those come from? They mostly come from the UK. Why? Because the UK has a national genomic surveillance program, very aggressive. 
And because of that program, they spotted this new variant strain. Well, how does that compare in the United States? Well, we routinely do genomic sequencing on, David, let's take a guess. What percent of all the known circulating viruses of this COVID epidemic do you think that we are routinely genomically sequencing in America? David, I'll give you a hint. It's very low. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew that. That, that. that was the tell. But I, I have 3%. Wow, I much lower. We're 3%. Wow, that would be great. Actually, it's 0.3%. Well, that's what I meant. I, I didn't <laughs> see the decimal. He did. He meant that. He meant the small number. Yeah. <laughs> but Lori, I think I, all of that, I agree with all of that. I just don't know how... I, I will say that we've been pressing and trying to get genomic surveillance for a while now, not even because of this variant. So I think, uh, you know, if you're sitting in like the Biden, COVID, if you're Jeff Zients and you're running kind of point on all of this, you're going to push for that. And you're going to tell Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, yes, we need to try to do all of that. And Francis Collins has made some of these announcements. But you're going to do your best to put out a really public facing, we will get as many people vaccinated as possible. And I'm not saying, I'm just saying that you're, you're Lori, you're correct, correct, correct. And, but we're at the point now where it is kind of a race to see shots in arms, knowing that's not going to have any effect on the deaths. I mean, we just passed, David, you know, 4,400 deaths in a 24 hour period. I mean, I, I don't know, we're going to get to 5,000 probably easily soon. And that's not something we can change right now, but Lori's right. It says it does, we, we have so many takeaways and deficiencies. By the way, those genomic surveillance deficiencies, those have been outlined in pandemic plans, H1N1, Ebola, as you know. I mean, this is not news, news. So it's disturbing to see how much of this has had an effect on what we're doing. I'm just trying to put a little light on yeah. maybe a competent administration with a parallel communication strategy combined with a parallel to, to both your and David's points about the incredible technical flaws in the rollout of this vaccine. I think those are absolutely fixable from central command. That's exactly what we did on healthcare.gov. That's exactly what I think. Here's where we are, Kavita. Right. Okay, so um, we have, you know, like say eight runners in the sprint lanes mm -hmm. for a marathon. Uh, and uh, they're all the um, Biden team that's going to head up COVID response. Mm -hmm. And then in the inside lane, uh, we have four or five variants of yeah, the virus. That's right. That's a and, great analogy. And we, and we know, we know the identity of maybe one or two of them. Mm -hmm. And the others are surprises yet to hit us in the face. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think you're, you're on actually January, paying. On January 20th, the gun gets shot for the start and the race starts and the race is, you know, can we vaccinate uh, a third or half of the American population before we hit the UK like devastation of this skyrocketing variant strain mm -hmm. and before we have vaccine resistance strains, because if we don't have spread among people, it doesn't really matter if you have a vaccine resistance rate, it won't reach population significant level. Yep. But um, this is that takes us to another not terribly small caveat, which is that the way the Operation Warp Speed approved trials were designed mm -hmm. for not just the 
current Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, but um, the Novavax, the Johnson & Johnson, and other products that are going to come to the FDA in the next four weeks with their data for approval. The way they design the studies, the, the measurement to say this is a good vaccine or it's not a good vaccine is the rate at which the study population progressed to severe disease versus the placebo recipients. So it's about protecting the individual from severe disease. Nothing in these studies is designed to answer the most important question, which is, if you get vaccinated, can you still spread virus to other people? Let me let me interject something here, despite my enjoying just sitting back and listening. Kavita, I think Lori's being too optimistic. Um, and, you know, it doesn't happen often, but I think she has neglected a big factor. Uh, and the big factor that she has neglected is one that a lot of people neglected and really actually exacerbated this thing over the course of the past year. And that is politics. You know, you can talk about viruses and you can talk about immunology and you can talk about testing, but if the president of the United States says no masks, the president of the United States says no testing, the pre then you end up going from several tens of thousands of people dying to maybe 500,000 people have died of this thing already and another several hundred thousand are gonna die. We're about to do something that we haven't done politically. And so this is what I'd like you to address Kavita and then Lori. Next week, a week from today, we're gonna to have a new president. And everybody who comes in, all the members of that track team that Lori just described, they're gonna all go, well, you know, we've had to deal, you know, we were handed this by, by Trump. And every Republican is gonna say, it's entirely on you. This is all yours. Whatever Trump did didn't matter. And every single day, they're gonna hammer it. Then in the red states, they're gonna say, no, we're not gonna do your mask thing, or we're not gonna distribute this this way, or the federal government is screwing us. And they're gonna produce drag and confusion throughout this whole kind of thing. And if the Biden team doesn't get it right, they can't do anything else. If the Biden team doesn't get the vaccine out there, there will be no other story. It'll be mm -hmm. what Russia was to Trump. Um, you think they're ready for it? Do you think we can handle that? Because you know, some American politics, this is gonna come as a shock to you. Um, some American politicians are pretty stupid and some of the American politicians are pretty dishonest uh, and some are pretty cynical. And, you know, scientists could get it all right and they could still screw it up. Yeah, absolutely. And that's partly why um, in some of the media, even I've kind of said, I'd rather 
under promise and over deliver for that very reason, David, I'm very concerned that, by the way, just add in there the fact that even still to this day, one week before the inauguration, you still have barriers to some of the information that the um, agency review teams need in order to completely understand, for example, kind of manufacturing and some of the uh, arrangements operation warp speed has made with the individual companies about the speed of manufacturing these vaccines. So that's just one of many examples uh, which has, by the way, resulted in something that kind of escaped the, I saw, I'm sure, I think, Lori, you saw as well, that General Monsef, General, <laughs> Dr. Monsef Slawi, uh, is was asked to submit his resignation. He was kind of one of the key figures in Operation Warp Speed. So David, your concerns are completely founded. Remind me of when uh, Barack Obama promised to get healthcare reform done quickly, and things were kind of tanking in the summer of 2009, and we didn't think it would be possible, and how that not only threatened his legislative agenda, but ultimately, even with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, led to the shift in the midterms to a Republican majority in the Congress, as you recall. So I do think that that's fair and valid. It's why those of us who are working with those people on the coronavirus task force and know them personally have been making every appeal possible to kind of put a little bit of a kind of a backstop to some of the promises in because of all the barriers that we've seen. Having said that, I think that President-elect Biden knows that absolutely everything he does is going to be measured on a metric that is not fair and certainly was one that Donald Trump has failed at on every single level. But of course, the Democrats are going to be held to a different standard and Biden knows it. So I do expect to see even more attention put on staffing. I will expect to see just looking into a crystal ball, you're going to see people kind of getting brought in that are a little bit more um, on the ground, hands-on operational types. You're already seeing that a little bit with folks who have led health agencies and health officials. And I hope that that continues. I also hope that there's, I, I will say there's, there's got to be, we've got new leadership coming into the CDC. We've got new leadership at many levels. We have yet to hear about a new leader at the FDA. We need one for all the reasons Lori described the way the trials were set up between the NIH and other researchers testing. I am still sitting here today telling you that even though we're doing 200 million tests for COVID, it is still very hard to get tested for COVID. And that that's just not a pragmatic way to deal with what Lori and, and I have described. So I do worry that this administration is kind of being set up to fail. I think that the Republicans will do that no matter what he accomplishes. He can get 200 million shots out. And I think they'll say that there was this one thing you promised us, Joe Biden, and you didn't do it. Um, so I think that will always happen. But it's the reason I do feel um, in the sprint analogy, you know, I want Usain Bolt on our team, not on the viruses team. And I think we've got the makings of it. I do think the initial days are going to be rough just to be a level setting here. And you heard it on Deep State. I know other people have said it before. Coming into the government, you know this, David, coming into the government when it's all different and transitions, it's rough. It's just not easy. And when you have people who don't know the buildings and don't know the people, it just takes time. So I do well, think it's going to be rough in the beginning. I do. Yeah, well, and on top of that, you know, the, 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 the Obama administration came in, they faced a big problem. There was a financial crisis. Yeah. Right. Well, the Obama administration and the Bush administration had agreed in October. That's right. To work together, and they actually worked together. And, and Congress a, did. And too. Congress. <laughs> and you know, yeah. no, right. But it was one of those really, you know, that there was a moment there where the whole country said, "This is too big a deal. We can't make this about politics. We're going to fix it." We've That's had right. the opposite of that 
That's exactly right. I'm glad you said that because the, the difference then was, and I was on the Senate staff working on the Recovery Reinvestment Act. We knew this was all so that Obama would be, and this was before the election, but we knew it was all to kind of prepare what we had hoped would be a democratic administration coming in. And that was very clear. So the differences are incredibly stark and the barriers are incredibly high. And I'm, I'm definitely afraid, which is why I, I kind of, I, you know, it's not all going to change at 12.01 PM on January 20th, but it is going to start to be clear. And I'm just looking forward to having a president who's not tweeting insults and inciting terrorism and having healthcare leaders who actually cite evidence. I mean, to me, that's going to be one of the biggest changes. And I think that will start kind of the rest of the foundation for what I hope is a recovery year. But I do worry a little bit that a lot of Americans, including you know, David, I, I, you know, getting a vaccine, I, I, once you get it, I have seen um, some detrimental behavior uh, that I think could lead to, unfortunately, a little uptick and surge in, in viral cases because people feel like they get the shot and it kind of gives them an immunity passport immediately. And that's not how it works. Yeah. No, my daughters have told me that, that I'm not permitted to do that. Um, you know, they've said, you, you know, you got to still wear your mask and so forth. But, the, you know, the other thing I was going to say about the Obama side of this, and then I'll flip this a little bit, was, you know, the, the, as a result of the cooperation, dealing with financial recovery went pretty smoothly. The next big political item on the Obama agenda was healthcare. Mm-hmm. It became the signature item. As a consequence, failure was unthinkable. They really had to work on it, and it pushed everything else out of the way. It, it just made it impossible to do anything else. And that, of course, led to the midterms this could have a similar kind of an effect. Now, we've got only got eight minutes here, and so I'm gonna, each one of you can do four minutes on this or five minutes on this if you want, but as we were talking, the president of the United States was impeached for the second time. Um, and you know, it just happened as we were talking, and I think 10 Republicans voted for it, um, which is pathetic. I mean, absolutely, I mean, there were people rampaging through the building a week ago, 10 of them managed to summon the courage to, to, to do that. But it strikes me in having the conversation with you guys that it should be the third time that he's impeached and not the second time. Because if you are told on January 17th or whenever he was told by Azar that this thing was coming, and you were told 10 times before you visited the CDC on March 6th that this was coming, and you were told it was going to be a big deal, and you were told that you were going to need to test, and you were told you were going to need, and you deliberately did none of those things, and you withheld resources, and you did sweet deals with friends, and you put your son-in-law in charge of it, and the result was the death of hundreds of thousands of people. The case for impeaching Donald Trump for his handling of COVID is much more compelling than the, the case either the other two cases, I would think. Lori, your reaction, then Kavita, your reaction. Well, I put, I sat down and crunched the numbers uh, a couple days ago. And since November 3rd, when the president became completely fixated on maintaining power and denouncing the caliber and the uh, honesty of the election, to the degree that his White House has become completely overwhelmed. There's nothing else on the agenda. Um, During that time, the size of our epidemic more than doubled. 
So since November 3rd, we've doubled or more than doubled everything that happened from last January to November 3rd. Um, and during that time, all we've heard from the government uh, to defend itself is that it's done a bang up job with getting the vaccines out. And that's what we're meant to focus on. And of course, they did a bang up job on getting the vaccines out of the pipeline, not getting them into arms. Uh, on that level, they've completely failed. Um, I was just in a, a long series of meetings related to uh, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, and an initiative he and his wife created funding um, about uh, 39 or 40 research sites to compare 23 countries for their responses to COVID and to understand what are the key elements of success and the key elements of failure. And of course, the United States is the worst failure. Um, and it's really quite interesting. They end up deciding there's basically been three types of responses. And as I'm telling you this, you have to ask yourself, can Biden fix our problem? So we've had three, ki three kinds of responses. There's real success. And the leader of that pack would be Taiwan. And real success has occurred in countries where the level of trust between government and its people is very, very high. So high that uh, when government says everybody wear a mask, they really all wear a mask. Uh, and where there had been past recent experience with threatening epidemics. In the case of Taiwan, it was SARS and it was bird flu. So you put them together and you have a real atmosphere of success. The second kind of country would be exemplified by Germany and that's consensus. So it's a federalist structure or a you know provincial and federal structure uh, in which there has to be a, a consensus view that we have a shared tackle problem to tackle. We're gonna overcome our partisan differences. We have to let science dictate the solutions and here we go and we march forward. And that, that's been the classic German, Norwegian, Danish. These are all countries that have been very successful. And then you have the, the big five that are responsible for more than half of all the COVID on, on the planet. That'd be the United States, Brazil, India, um, Turkey, uh, who did I leave out? And between us, uh, more than half of the cases, and they are characterized as chaos. And the classic hallmarks of the chaos that means that your public health initiatives don't work is, one, there's tremendous distrust within the society, not just against government, but against citizen against citizen, individual against individual. Two, there's a, such a, a very, very high level of uh, failure to compensate the average citizen for the economic sacrifices they're required to make in order to slow the spread of virus. And so uh, a hallmark of all of the stated countries, Russia, India, United States, Brazil, is that we've not offered any real financial compensation to companies that have gone out of business, to individuals that are facing financial trauma. And whereas the success stories, the consensus countries have all offset the financial losses and pain. Um, and 
I, I just don't know if Biden can march in and in any quick order conquer this tremendous mm -hmm. level of distrust, the tremendous disunity and mutual hatred, and how the degree to which it's all been fueled by the economic pain that individual citizens and small businesses have experienced. And, you know, if you can't get Congress to, to even go from $600 to 2000 measly dollars as uh, compensation that somehow people are supposed to live on for some huge amount of time until the next bailout. Uh, if you can't even get that through, then I don't, I don't know where success lays. It, it, we're racing on the belief, and Wall Street has certainly bought into this, that vaccine is the gold ring at the end of the carousel, and you just grab that and you win the carousel ride. But I'm, I, I just don't, I don't think that's enough. And I haven't heard enough from the Biden team of how they're going to deal with the pain side of this and bring the restaurant owners and the small business entrepreneurs and the actors and the uh, waiters and all the people who've completely been obliterated back into the fold with some kind of financial compensation that allows their businesses to resurrect and their employment to return. Kavita? Uh, sometimes I sit back, Lori, and I think, God, we really are fucked, aren't we? Uh, but I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to offer, and I think it was Sweden, maybe it was Sweden. Anyway, when we were talking about deaths and, and talking about kind of countries and per capita cases as well as deaths, um, you know, I always include my friends from Sweden for a lot of decisions they've made. Uh, but I will, I will just add the one, the only reason I, so a couple, I have to remain optimistic. I'll get a little more clinical. I have to remain optimistic or else I feel like a lot of us, I think the three of us are sputtering on fumes for different reasons where we, we too feel like we've been duped and given this set of incompetencies that have led us to where we are now. So I have to believe that between kind of what's been, you know, it was also this week, a year anniversary when the virus was sequenced, right? So if you think about where we've come, I have to look on the other side of this. I have to believe that even though we'll have incredible roadblocks that we're going to have much more progress for a variety of reasons, including by the way, just the little fact, you know, Samantha Power was named head of USAID today. We're gonna have like adults who are competent on the global stage. Lori, to your point, to kind of actually have these conversations, joining the World Health Organization again. I mean, I'm just happy to see competent humans that will be forthcoming also about their errors. I think that the part that I do worry about is exactly your point, Lori, but I'm willing to kind of do, I think the three of us have been probably in our own way, helping the team, people, the people we know on the Biden team. And I, I have been trying to push and say, have you turned over every rock? Have you explored every option? Have we thought about the most creative, disruptive ways to do things? And and of course the answer is no, but I'm hoping that by pressing, we will see some response. I'll, I'll make my own predictions though. I, I, I expect to see strong language from Joe Biden. I think that the articles about his dismay are not overstated. And I think his kind of, one thing I've noticed from when I worked with him as the vice president that 
you know, he is the kind of person that when he gets angry, everybody knows it because he's not the kind of person that gets angry. He was a lot like Obama. He did not invoke a temper or really kind of draw lines until he was really pushed. And I think you're going to see him be front and center, but not the way Trump is, but it, in a way to push that whole of government response that you've heard Jeff Science and Ron Klain talk about. So I've got to remain somewhat optimistic. I also don't want to diminish, by the way, some of the kind of progress we're making on treatments. I mean, I, I, the monoclonal antibody uh, logistics has been a disaster, trying to, but trying to at least see where we have evidence for treatments and matching those to getting them into people's arms, likewise, I think can be critical. And then finally, I would love, it's an idea I've been peddling to the Biden folks that given the new, I, you know, just given the variants and what we're seeing, for me, it's, it's a time to remind people to double down on the quality of their masking. I do think that the quality of the mask does matter. And I do think that the idea of putting a high quality triple ply kind of surgical type mask into every American's hands was not overdone and was a good idea then and is a great idea now. And, and it's the kind of thing that I hope Biden and his people will start to consider. So there's work to be done, but I'm hopeful that starting in a week, it'll, it'll begin. Well, I hope they keep listening to you guys. Um, I worry knowing Democrats and having been a democratic administration that they will negotiate with themselves, yeah. that they will try to be too collegial, that they will try yeah. to come up with the nuanced solution. And that I think we're at one of those moments where if a hundred billion dollars is required for something that you should get $200 billion. And if you need, you know, a million people to do it, then you should get 2 million people to do it. And yeah. if you, have a choice and it's difficult and you need to get the army to do, then you do it. You know, in other words, I think this is one of those moments where um, you, you've got to be very strong. You've got to be very bold. You've got to ask for too much. You've got to use scorched earth tactics to get it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you've got to make success. This, you've got to treat success at this the same way you would treat winning a war. Um, where you, you say this is a national priority, we must all come together on this. Uh, and, you know, part of, the, part of that involves saying to all the states, we're all in this together. There's no red state solution or blue state solution. We need a national solution and it will benefit all of you. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's more like those other models that, that Lori was talking about with regard to that Eric Schmidt mm -hmm. project. Um, in any event, we shall see, and we will continue to talk to you guys about this. Um, and uh, I, I cherish the time that we get to sit and and I get to listen to you, and I come away smarter, and I know that our audience does, and they loves it, they love it. Um, uh, and uh, and so uh, we'll do it again real real soon. Um, uh, in the meantime, stay healthy, folks. Go to the DSRnetwork.com to see what else we've got cooking and to sign up to become a member. And we'll see you all again soon. Stay healthy. Bye-bye.